Hello, and welcome to the Block Explorer. I'm Colin Brightfield. Hey folks, I'm Cash Upton. The Block Explorer is here to educate and inspire you about the world of crypto and NFTs. We'll do deep dives into critical concepts for understanding what's happening and discuss current events shaping the space. We're making this podcast for the curious, the free thinkers, and the change makers that propel us forward. As we embark on our adventures, please do remember that none of this is financial advice and crypto can be risky. In this episode, we explore the implications of the executive order on the cryptocurrency industry issued by President Biden about two weeks ago and what it means for the Web3 industry as a whole. We'll also take a look at what's been going on in other stories that are happening in the regulation sphere, including a worrisome bill that was just introduced by Senator Elizabeth Warren. And then plus, we'll look at the use of DAOs as a political force with the introduction of Lobby 3 DAO implemented with Andrew Yang that just launched also earlier this month. So we got a lot to talk about on this episode, Cash, but it's important stuff, right? Yep, really important stuff. We see ourselves really at an inflection point here in this new order with huge, huge waves of crypto adoption. Uh, For instance, it's helping people's livelihood. Uh, Ukrainian refugees, for instance, one of them fled with $2,000 in Bitcoin to Poland um, on a USB USB drive. drive. Right. But at the same time, uh, we're seeing governments around the world uh, trying to formulate and adopt a regulatory framework that could really cripple the industry if it's not careful. Yeah. And we have to remember that crypto is location agnostic. And what does that mean? That means that it doesn't matter where crypto is as far as physically because it lives on in the digital world. So if there are certain governments, certain nation states that make it very difficult for the crypto industry to operate, guess what? It's just going to move. It's going to move overseas and it's going to take all that innovation, all of those jobs, all of those um, in, intangible things too, you know, that, that, that happen with a brain drain with it. So we're excited about this executive order because it actually turned out to be a little bit more positive than most people were thinking. So let's jump into it. What did it say? Yeah. So President Joe Biden, he put out an executive order on March 9th, calling the government, calling on the government to examine the risks and benefits of digital assets and cryptocurrencies. And so it said a few different things, but it outlined kind of some major issues. And uh, some of those were the consumer investor protection. So making sure that people are protected with crypto. Um, It touched on making sure that crypto is not used for illicit activity. It touched on making sure that the United States is a center of innovation and remains competitive abroad. And it touched on um, the people's ability to use cryptocurrency to possibly evade sanctions or not. And, you know, to make sure that we're building in these systems that, you know, are protecting our interests. Right. And, and one of these calls to action was to investigate the potential use of a central bank digital currency for the United States and to look into that further. Yeah. I mean, this has been something that's been coming up a lot recently because there's a lot of scrutiny around stable coins. And as you know, there's a little bit of ambiguity around what backs Tether, which is a popular stable coin. So stable coins are cryptocurrency coins or tokens that are created to peg to the US dollar. So they, a lot of them are backed by a basket of assets like uh, USDC, US dollar coin. And you can see what those assets are. And some of them 
um, are as less uh, transparent like Tether. And so the United States government um, is a little wary of some of these things because they call them, you know, they're stable coins that are pegged to the dollar. And so they kind of um, play like a dollar-like role in the digital um, asset economy. And because the dollar dominance is very important to um, the United States economy, so when they look at these stable coins, they they and that they're exists in this kind of unregulated world right now, it gives them anxiety. You know, it doesn't. They don't really like the fact that there's like these digital dollars out there that people are using to transact. Not all stable coins are created equal. We'll, we'll remind our listeners that that we're really big fans of Dai uh, stablecoin, which is backed by renewable energy projects. And what you mentioned about Tether is there's been some controversy about if they actually have all the assets in their treasury backing the issuance of their uh, backed dollar. Yeah. So, you know, the, the things that, you know, are significant about this order is that, you know, the aim will be, you know, looking into how to do, you know, what are the best tools that we can use to, um, you know, regulate this industry, but it's not, you know, it's not a rush to create the rules. It's just like a call for research almost. And let's, let's explore how, um, the best ways to integrate cryptocurrency into the United States economy and then the global economy at large, but through, you know, the policies that we create now is really going to affect, you know, that 10 years into the future of how, you know, this industry develops. So it's a really, it's significant. Um, but it's also, I think, you know, a positive note because I think that a lot of people were dreading the announcement of this. So there was, a, you know, a lot of people kind of heard that it was coming soon. And a lot of people in crypto were worried. They kind of had a gloom and doom attitude that this is the, the signaling of the beginning of the end for crypto. And uh, I mean, I know there's a lot of people that are, you know, hardcore anti-regulation, but Andrew Yang sought by ETH Denver actually unannounced and mm-hmm. got to speak on the main stage. And he talked about this. He, this. Pretty much his talk was on uh how the industry needs to get its act together as far as um regulation. It's going to actually make the industry grow more and faster because right now the lack of regulation is a big risk that institutions look at and it prevents them from getting in fully because they, they can't enter an industry that's... um so immature as far as you know where where the guardrails are right right they want to be able to trust uh that there's a framework for uh putting their money into these different um systems and and i do like that the 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 fact sheet of the the order even suggests that the u.s quote must maintain technological leadership (laughs) so that's good to see the executive order is really cool in that it you know it addresses you know the fact that there's there's real innovation happening it, you know, it, it makes a caveat that, you know, it's important for the U.S. to maintain its leadership in technology. And one of the mandates of the order is to explore how the U.S. does that, you know, in a competitive way. So it's not, a, you know, there's, there's an acknowledgement, like a, just a clear eyed acknowledgement that this is a, a nation, but very potent industry. And to squash it um, in the United States would be an unwise move. I think it was just like a very big sigh of relief for a lot of people in the cryptocurrency industry to just see that the administration has a much more balanced approach to regulation and their ideas on how that should happen in crypto versus like some of the um, loud people in Congress who make their opinions very loudly. And and often their, their opinions are not nuanced and 
oftentimes very incorrect with facts. Yeah, it was like poorly researched. I was trying to find a nice way to say it. But <laughs> it's just wrong. flat out wrong. Um, <laughs> and I like what you mentioned there. Um, for instance, we saw China outlaw Bitcoin mining. And um, a lot of the hash of Bitcoin mining moved to the United States. And that's something that uh, we're going to potentially see even more of as the U.S. becomes a hub for mining. Yeah, I think that was it's it's a really big, significant uh trend that we're seeing because like you said, China banned it and the US always likes to do what the opposite of China. So if China bans it, that's actually bullish for mining in the United States. And it also is trying things the argument for for Bitcoin because you know people were wary that so much mining was happening in China. And because of that, um, people did point out the fact that, oh look, like whatever percentage happens in China and that that's sketchy. We don't want to hold an asset that is in some ways controlled by the CCP or is on, you know, in China's jurisdiction. But then when they banned Bitcoin mining, all, all that went offshore and a lot of it actually showed up in the United States. And so now the United States has a much richer mining industry. And, and you know, that's good for the United States, you know, as far as, you know, our competitive advantage, you know, that we're, we're becoming um, a leader, you know, in, in Bitcoin mining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance uh, had a report that showed 35% of Bitcoin mining capacity is now in the United States. And then just the the, the growing number of users we've seen over the last year, right? Uh, adopting uh, usage of crypto in the US compared to uh, historically being uh, done in less developed countries. Yeah, and uh, we have a growing number of crypto users here you know, in, in the world. And so because you have more people getting into crypto, one of the things that the executive order did mention is to protect you know, the US and global financial stability and mitigate systemic risk. So that is one thing you know, people point at cryptocurrency, how volatile it is. That's often one of the things that um, people will, will bring up. And people, you know, there's different responses to that. But I think that's something that needs to be addressed, you know, as as far as you know, there are some really gnarly scams that happen. There's some really um, poorly designed protocols with bugs in them that lead to huge hacks, right? So, like, you know, think about this, right? When you think about the wormhole hack that happened with the Solana bridge to Ethereum, so that was $360 million that was stolen worth of ETH, like 80,000 ETH. And that's enough to, you know, like that, that could have like collapsed a lot of like decentralized financial ecosystem like that could have led to like you know downstream effects that would really affect their overall uh, ecosystem at large but jump finance and jump trading jump crypto was a jump uh, jumped in and <laughs> footed the bill and paid the 360 million dollars like footed that and just just covered it which is ridiculous but that's what stopped like you know some having from like more systemic risk so when you think about more people getting in and the fact that these blockchains are public and permissionless and people can put things on them you know with with kind of shoddy code that's not audited and so yeah there is there is you know and that's why they had to put that provision in there that okay yes like there's innovation and we and we we want that but we also need to protect the financial stability of of our systems at large Right, because as of right now, uh, the U.S. is home to one of the largest crypto platforms like Coinbase. Um, so we we do see a lot of domestic assets and and buying and selling of crypto assets uh, being conducted here in the United States. 
Yeah. And then one thing I wanted to touch on too is the executive order says mitigate you know, the illicit finance and national security risks posed by illicit, illicit use of digital assets. And I do think that like that's a funny one to bring up because just no smart criminals use public blockchains for doing their illicit they, activities. They I mean, use not cash no, but money. it's really low. It's a very low percentage, like the dumb ones, if they want to get caught. They because use untraceable it's cash. It's all public. It's just like, why would you? It's it's completely out there. And we've seen, I know we've highlighted and we've talked on this podcast before of different hacks and the hackers and how like using blockchain is just the worst way to 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 do anything private private because it's all public. It's a public distributed ledger. It is not anonymous. And you might have a wallet that is anonymous, but there's modeling techniques that that they can use to get really sh- close to who they think owns that wallet. And then of course, if you ever do anything um, with a KYC account, like a know your customer account, like if you do any transaction with your Coinbase account or FTX account and your KYC, then they know exactly who you are. Or if you, you know, buy an ENS uh, name as your, as your normal name and put it in your wallet, <laughs> that's an NFT that just KYCs your wallet. You have to understand is that the, the National Security Agency, the FBI, like the CIA, like these government agencies, they're very smart. They're very sophisticated. Um, and so if you're if you're if you're dumb enough to use a public distributed ledger to do your illicit activities, then you deserve to get caught and you will get caught. Right. Yeah. Cash still rules in illicit activ- activity. Um, we were just talking to someone the other day that joked that if someone had an idea for making an app or a cryptocurrency that functioned exactly like tangible hard cash does it would get completely outlawed and be illegal by the current you know surveillance state of the US government yeah like if cash was introduced into like congress and like okay we have this new idea we're going to create this stuff where it's traceless you can't track who who has however much um it can it can be distributed across borders without you knowing in any quantity unless you like check everyone's bag you know so it's like um how about you know? How, what do you guys think? Should we should, should we introduce this new idea called cash? And like they'd be like, no way! All right. So how did the community respond? Um, you said you said it actually wasn't as worrisome to a lot of folks uh, and and whatnot as people were originally thinking. Yeah. So we had some really good takes on it. Um, Jake Travinsky, he's he's a great uh, person to follow when you want to get updated on. Things that are happening in regulation sphere. He's at the Blockchain Association in Washington D.C., and he he tweeted that anyone worried that President Biden's executive order would spell doom and gloom for crypto can fully relax now. The main concern was that the executive order might force rushed rulemaking or impose new and bad restrictions, but there's nothing like that here. It's about as good as we could ask for. I love it. Then he goes on to say the executive order also represents another striking contrast with alarmist politicians and media in that it is ultimately a call for further steady and deliberate planning, not a reactive rush to legislate or regulate. Yeah. And that was Jerry Brito that, that tweeted that. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty much, you know, we, everyone was holding their breath and thinking like, okay, here we go. <laughs> like based off what happened with the infrastructure bill, like, okay, like, um, they, what's going to happen with this executive order, especially, you know, this, this happened, you know, after this got happened on the ninth. So this is after Ukraine has been invaded. So people were already kind of on edge, 
but it, it actually was just made a lot of sense, right? So, you know, the main per, the, the main provisions are all kind of, pre, you know, there's some that are like oh, questionable, but there's a lot of positive ones, like protect the U.S. consumers, investors, and businesses, protect the, the stability of the financial system, promote U.S. leadership in tech and economic competitiveness, to promote equitable, equitable and safe access to affordable financial services. I thought that one is, is, is a really great, Thing because we talk a lot about that on the podcast too. We talk about how, you know, Ethereum to get an Ethereum address, all you need is a internet access and a smartphone, um, and you can get. It doesn't care how old you are, you know, where you live or um, what your race is or things like that. And so, you know, we talk about financial inclusion, and that was actually mm-hmm. one of the things that they bullet pointed in the in the um, executive order. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that one I was really glad to see because, as as you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, unaccessibility of financial tools to people, and and the blockchain allows for that through decentralized finance and other blockchain tools. So it's really good that the president could actually um, you know see that and and mention it in the executive order. You know, another impact of the executive order that Jake Travinsky mentioned is that it might slow down some members of Congress who are working to draft new legislation, and especially ones that. Um, you know, they might not want to contradict the national strategy that President Biden announced, and uh, they, they don't want to front run that research and report process that has just been kicked off. Right. Yeah, right. that that would be nice. Um, but we saw kind of the opposite. Um, can you tell us, uh, our listeners, what the the Warren introduction of uh, Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren, just introduced a pretty, pretty sweeping bill with a ton of restrictions? Yeah, so she reduced, introduced a bill because... She saw that as an opportunity to seize on the thing that things that are happening in Ukraine and Russia right now. And basically, this targets publishing code and facilitating trans- transactions. And anyone who builds, operates, and uses cryptocurrency networks, even if they have no knowledge or intent to help evade sanctions, um, they would find they, they would be held liable. So they call it, um, it's a bill titled the Digital Assets Sanctions and Compliance Enhancement Act. And it's under the guise of bolstering bolstering sanctions against Russia for its unjustified invasion of Ukraine. But it's just, it's just, it just seems like seizing on like a righteous cause at the right time to just like gain, like gain power. And she did this despite no data suggesting that cryptocurrency has been used or can meaningly, meaningfully be used by sanctioned parties to evade, evade sanctions. And she did this despite the fact that frontline officials from the White House, the Treasury, and the Department of Justice have all stated that cryptocurrency is a poor tool for sanction evasion. Right, because like you just mentioned, with illicit activity, it's a public ledger. Yeah. So, if we see Russia trying to move, you know, billions of dollars in assets through the blockchain, there's going to be a lot of red flags. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's a complete underestimation of the capabilities of our national security agencies and like and you know FBI and the CIA and all the other great people that keep us safe. It's like we're we're on that, and we can easily identify. You know, if if you see six hundred million dollars being moved around, you know on the chain and that has that touches some Russian stuff, like it's going to be pretty obvious and it's not really going to go through. So, I mean, one example, right, is the FBI director, Christopher Ray said last Thursday at a Senate intelligence committee hearing, quote, the Russians 
ability to circumvent the sanctions with cryptocurrency is probably highly overestimated on the part of maybe them and others. We are, as a community and with our partners overseas, far more effective on that than I think sometimes they appreciate. We have built up significant expertise both at the FBI and with some of our partners. And there have been some very significant seizures and other efforts that I think have exposed the vulnerability of cryptocurrency as a way to get around sanctions. So yeah, like they're on it. They straight they, from the FBI director, Christopher Ray himself. <laughs> yeah. So Warren, like, do you not talk to do you not talk to any of these people before you just like start writing crazy stuff into your bill? And then what did the White House say? The White House had another response to it as well. Right. Quote, the scale that the Russian state would need to successfully circumvent the U.S. and partners financial sanctions would almost certainly render cryptocurrency as an ineffective primate tool for the state. And that was said by uh, Carol House, the director of cybersecurity for the National Security Council during a webinar uh, on Wednesday. Yeah, because you know we're not talking about, you know, a couple ETH here, you know, right. we're talking about millions billions of dollars to make it actually worthwhile for them to actually have an impact on the on the scale that we're sanctioning them um it, it would be very easily to be to see and it would also make it really inefficient so yeah uh, what what did the treasury department say on that one speaking of which yeah they said the scale the treasury department's quote quote is is great too it says the scale of what they have to move and where they have to move things from crypto is not necessarily going to be that concerning uh, this is Todd Todd Conklin. He's the counselor to the Deputy Treasury Secretary, and he said also a bit more of a spike in the crypto market, in my view, has been observed lately. But that's money. Any attempt to move money through exchanges, you know, so it's it's just like a bunch of like and, and fodder. I'm sorry, because a lot of that that exchange traffic is most likely you know Russian and Ukrainian citizens, not oligarchs and and the government treasury. Yeah. So pretty much they define a digital asset transaction facilitator is anyone that uses a communication protocol, which is highly ambiguous, or publishes software, including open source computer code. So it pretty much says that pretty much anyone. So if you were go, going to uh, Work on an open contribute to some code to an open source protocol, and then someone was to use that that protocol to do something that helped them evade some sanctions. Then you could be held responsible. You would be held reliable um, because you created a you published some code that then someone used for evading sanctions. Wow! So, like, if I used Google Maps to go rob a bank, then Google could be liable. Yeah. So. If any, for every bank robbery that was ever aided by the fact that people had Google Maps, like Google's should be responsible for that. It's pretty much what this bill says. Wow, that's pretty blatant. Yeah. Was there a take that it was even like going against the First Amendment and like some unconstitutionality of it? Yeah. So I think that's something to really think about too, is because this is, it starts to get into some of like the core rights that, are we, you know, want to say that we hold near and near and dear to our hearts? Because for for Congress to demand that the president sanction everyone matching a broad description, pretty much like anyone who's pretty much uses blockchains, it's blatantly unconstitutional um, under the First Amendment. 
And also, you know, to forbid the publication of open source code that's protected under the First Amendment. Got you. So yeah, actively, you know, outline different open source software developers or essentially, you know, making them afraid that they might be doing something illicit just by publishing open source code. Yeah, because pretty much what it does is it empowers the Treasury Secretary to just ban software developers, miners, node operators from having any business interaction with anyone or any crypto wallet address that might be that might be Russian. So from apart from being like sweeping in vague power um, at will, it also like directs you know the behavior of a bunch of Americans, and it's also doing little to actually prevent the Russian state or oligarchs from evading sanctions. Right, so it's just like hurting like the average user because their their data is not complete, you know. So they're going to end up blocking people they don't mean to block or or sanction people or you know have false positives. But meanwhile, like the actual bad actors here, the ones who actually are well financed, like the Russian government and the oligarchs, they have the resources and the money to actually do things to evade sanctions, which um, you know, involve much more nefarious things than just like sending transactions on a public distributed ledger like Ethereum or Bitcoin. Right. And and the the folks who are probably gonna get punished the most would be ordinary Russians and and people who don't have those other off ramps to evade um those sanctions. And uh, you know, right now Russian citizens are potentially one of our greatest allies against the Putin regime and and wanting, you know, potentially for them to stand up against this uh atrocity. Yeah, and under the Obama administration, when they first designed what sanctions might look like on Russia after the invasion of Crimea, um, the Deputy National Security Advisor Dalip Singh said in Senate testimony, and I quote, before 2014, the United States never imposed sanctions on a country the size of Russia. It was the 10th largest economy in the world with a GDP roughly the size of Italy. So the complexity of doing something like that to Russia, you know, just seems like incomprehensible. And then when they first started to actually explore what those sanctions might look like, they came up with some guiding principles. And these are the principles that they outlined in 2014. And here, here they are. Sanctions against a large, complex, integrated market economy such as Russia should be, one, powerful enough to demonstrate US resolve and our capacity to impose overwhelming costs. Two, Responsible to limit contagion through the U.S. and global financial system. Three, targeted to avoid the appearance of punishing the Russian civilian population and in doing so strengthening Putin's domestic narrative. So that's the sticker right there. And four, calibrated to increase the chance of partnering with European international allies. Five, staged to preserve the scope for escalation or de-escalation in addition to learning from previous steps. Yeah, so going back to that number three, it's essentially... uh making it so the dissidents within Russia um, you know, can be further fed a narrative, a false narrative by Putin that, that the West and the United States and Europe are, are their enemy. Yeah, so it, it definitely doesn't really help to punish, like you said, the ordinary Russian citizen because Putin can then play into that with his propaganda. And they're, now the fact that they pretty much only have state media there, they've pretty much kicked out all the independent press and or they've left because they're scared to be there now because you can go to jail for 15 years if you say that the operation in Ukraine is a war and instead of calling it a mili- special military operation. So, um, yeah, you're seeing that it kind of it, it's kind of counterproductive to 
to, to have these kind of sanctions that punish indiscriminate nat- normal Russian citizens that may or may not have um, support Putin, but probably, you know, definitely didn't vote for him since he's just, you know, holds on to power you know, like a dictator. So there's, there's that issue right there where it's like, okay, well, you know, are, is that really helping? You know, when you look at the, this bill, you know, is it actually really going to help um, except it just really punish the average person? But then if you look at like the actual technical enforceability of it, it also kind of makes no, no sense because when you look at regulated custodial entities like exchanges, those are, you know, pretty easy to enforce because they're kind of on a nation state land like Coinbase or an FTX. Those you can, but with regard to like node operators, miners, software developers, um, that's hard to do because a cryptocurrency address is a set of letters and numbers generated by a device without reference to geographic location. So it doesn't really make sense to say that an address is Russian or American or Zambian. And you can use different digital clues and blockchain forensic services can make prob- probabilistic estimates of what country and address might be related to, but there's no way to actually know for sure. Right. And so if you can't know for sure, you know, what's the danger there? Are we at risk of, of blocking innocent? people yeah so if you're saying we're going to block all russian addresses you don't really know there's no real way to actually say that like you're actually accurately blocking all russian addresses so you're right. going to end up you're going to end up with false positives which means blocking addresses that shouldn't be blocked hurting innocent users and then you're going to end up with false negatives not blocking addresses that should be blocked exposing otherwise compliant exchanges to liability which in turn means they'll be more conservative and then block more addresses than they need to us hurting more innocent users. So the downstream effects of this uh, approach are just, they just end up hurting the entire e- ecosystem and especially a lot of just innocent people who are just trying to do normal things on the blockchain. Right. And then isn't that very burdensome on these software developers and open source users to even be able to inspect the data to see if there's any, you know, quote, Russianness um, of, you know, uh, activity. Yeah. So, I mean, you would have to create these new compliance, uh, systems and the, I, there might be, you know, some, some tools already, but the thing is none of these systems that you implement are going to actually be that accurate. And we'd have to, you know, we don't really enforce, like, can you imagine we don't force every American to inspect every packet of data on your, on your laptop or your, or your cell phone or your iPhone? For on the open internet for any kind of Russian stuff, any Russianness, um, because of this war that's happening, and that'd be offensive to like you know in uh, human rights if we force every American to do so with blockchain data. It's just the same thing. It's like what? How how are you going to like hold me responsible for things that you know little packets of data that might be passing through on the back end of my stuff if like um, unknown, unbeknownst to me? Yeah, it seems quite burdensome indeed. I think our main takeaway for our users is that uh, this is a pretty um, overreaching and dangerous uh, piece of legislation that just got introduced by Senator Warren. I mean, yeah, because really it's not going to do anything to improve the um, the ability of the sanctions we have now against the Russian uh, state to you know in their in their war effort. It's really not going to improve that much. What it's really going to do is just improve their ability to isolate and control people in their border who don't support the war. This is why it's really important to get involved. And, you know, 
it's crazy how dynamic this industry is. Like, we know, we had the executive order come out and that was like a positive moment. And, and now we have, you know, this thing coming out of um, Congress, this legislation that's really restrictive and it's, and it's completely out of touch with what happened with the executive order. So, you know, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic that the leadership set by Biden and the executive order will help settle the ship. And maybe um, the momentum that some people have with uh, this kind of knee-jerk reaction by some people in Congress to introduce this kind of hardcore, nonsensical legislation that that really doesn't achieve the goals that it wants, and so they'll be able to see that you know maybe there's a better way to go about this. Absolutely, and and that's a great opportunity to mention to our listeners uh, one of our most favorite ways that we'd recommend getting involved is to join the lobby three DAO, And that's uh, started by our, our friend, Andrew Yang. Yeah. Lobby three DAO is a way to support the causes of web three. And that was one of his big calls to action when he did stop by at ETH Denver is that he knew the executive order was coming soon. And he was pretty much telling the web three, the crypto ETH community was, Hey, you, you have to, make yourself heard. You have to make your voice heard. You have to do, get involved. You can't just put your head in the sand and expect DC to get things right. And it's up to all of us because the, the industry is you know, pretty small and nascent. Yeah, it's growing, but everyone does need to you know, vote and vote for in your local elections and vote with you know, how you donate your, your money, how you, how you contribute your time. So you know, if you have some time and you have skills that you can donate to Lobby 3 DAO or some of the other um, projects in the space. There's the Blockchain Association, there's Coin Center. So there's lots of different things you can do. I mean, you can write letters, tweet at your senator. There's, and for those of you that live in um, California District 35, Erica Rhodes is, is running in um, a tight race against an incumbent, Brad Sherman. Erica Rhodes was Brad Sherman. So you mean, if you're, if you're in the California District 35, make sure you're registered to vote in the midterms. And you know, Erica Rhodes is a great example of a millennial who's just rolling up her sleeves and getting to work. You know, she's an elementary school teacher and, and she decided to make a change and, and get this guy, Brad Sherman, out of office that no one really likes, but he's just there. And he's and he's vehemently anti Web three, anti crypto, and she's pro she's pro crypto. She's she's into this stuff. So so I mean, there's 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 pro there's pro crypto politicians that you can you can find and you can support. There's all different examples you can find where you want to get involved. I mean, maybe you can run in your district, you know. So right, yeah. Every every little bit helps, and I think that's I think that's kind of like our overall message is that. Everyone can do a little bit of something that makes sure that we dispel some of these um, misunderstandings that block the industry from moving forwards and really unlock in people's minds, you know, their un- unblock and unlock, you know, their imagination. Because I think a lot of people, they just look at crypto, what it is now, and then they look around and they, they see some of the challenges that it has, but they, they don't see the possibilities. And I think that's what we see. And that's why we have this podcast. I love it. Yeah, we we really do encourage people to to go to lobby3.io and uh, see how they're they're trying to you know be a lobbying force to really educate lawmakers about the positive potential of Web three and crypto. If you're not 
at the table. You're on the menu. All right, Cash, I thought you'd have something to respond to that. <laughs> it was too good. I was like, yeah, I don't want to get eaten. <laughs> well, that that what that saying means though is like if you're not part of the conversation, then you know, you maybe you're the thing that people are talking about. So yeah, and you know, I'd I I'd like to actually respond to that because you did bring up a really good point. And I think a lot of young Americans have a knee-jerk reaction to hear the word lobby and just cringe and think that it's big business. It's people like the tobacco lobby and the oil lobby that you know caused health and environmental degradation for years. But really, like you said, it's just having a voice at the table. You are, are, are being a proponent of what you believe in and what you hold dear. And lobbying can have a really good context too. So it definitely encourage people to dispel that myth and, and go get involved. Like you said, local government is just as good as uh, fed government, you know, at the smallest local level to get started. Yeah. And lobby three DAO is cool. It's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a cool way to get involved in politics. It's a DAO, decentralized autonomous organization. It's with Andrew Yang. It's a really, really cool team of people. They're going to have really cool events in person and online. I know they were already talking about having a rally on the National Mall in DC and having like a big picnic and things like that. So, you know, it's 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 not going to be your typical, you know, political organization. It's going to be cutting edge and I'm sure it's going to be a lot of fun with a lot of cool surprises. So, if you're curious about that, check them out. Otherwise, we hope that you enjoyed this episode and if you did, please leave us a review. We'd like to give a big thank you to our friend Matthew Patrick Donner, who's responsible for the Block Explorer production, including our music, mixing, and editing. Thank you for exploring the world of blockchain with us. Crypto is changing the world. We're here to ensure that you're ready. Please subscribe to our podcast. And if you're friends with Andy Yang, please let him know that we'd love to have him on our podcast. We look forward to sharing our next episode with you. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.